0: You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another installment of City Lights Live, the official online version of the City Lights events calendar. I'm your host, Peter Maravellis, and tonight, City Lights, in conjunction with the New Press, is honored to present Norman Solomon, celebrating the publication of his new book, War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine. It is published by the New Press. It is a powerful new expose of how the military-industrial complex, with the help of the media, conceals a state of perpetual war. War Made Invisible is an eloquent, moral call for an accounting, of the true cost of war. Norman Solomon is an activist activist. He is a co-founder of rootsaction.org and executive director of the Institute for Public Accuracy. His books include War Made Easy and Made Love Got War. He makes his home in the San Francisco Bay Area. Joining him tonight in conversation is the wonderful Chris Welsh. She is a producer and host at KPFA Radio in Berkeley, California. Before we begin, as is customary at the beginning of each event, I would like to acknowledge we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral homelands of the Ramatisholoni peoples, also known as the San Francisco Bay Area. We would like to take this moment to offer respect to those who have come before us as stewards of the land. So please join us now in offering a warm welcome to Norman Solomon and Chris Welch. Welcome to City Lights!
2: Thank you, Peter. And thank you all of you for being here and especially Norman. So uh, let us just begin and, and get your questions ready too, because Peter will be uh, shoveling them at us later. So I'm I'm reading and rereading this book and I always find something new in it. There it is right there. I hope you have your copies. Uh, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine. and Right now, I think I want to start with this one. During 50 years after the Vietnam War, the United States grew accustomed to asserting its right and power to make war in a variety of distant countries. Major interventions of the 1980s were confined to the Western Hemisphere, a tiny island of Grenada. Remember that one? I had dear friends who were there at the time and did a documentary about their experiences. Then Panama. But those two invasions were just opening acts of a rejuvenating quest for geopolitical dominance. And then he quotes George W. Bush saying, by God, we've kicked the Vietnam syndrome once and for all. In fact, that was a maybe we should start there with what Vietnam, the experience of Vietnam did, because there was the First World War and the Second World War. And we've just had the anniversaries of the bombings, the only nuclear bombings of civilian populations thus far knock wood uh, uh, but but vietnam was a wake-up call in many many ways norman welcome and thank you so much for writing this book and Babylon.
0: <laughs> okay well I'll, I'll i think i'll stick to english it's like uh, the only uh, language i can really babble in um you know what you're mentioning chris really reminds me and i think i have this approximately right Uh, what George Orwell wrote in 1984, those who control the past control the future, those who control the present control the past. And so when there's an effort to extrude, so to speak, from experiences, what the Vietnam War meant, I mean, it turned out that was really important, uh, the conclusions that uh, people drew from it. And so when the first President Bush said, after six weeks of bombing Iraq in 1991, Pentagon saying about 100,000 Iraqis were killed. That was taken as a great triumph of good warfare by the US media and political establishment. So yeah, uh, President Bush says, uh, by God, we've kicked the Vietnam syndrome once and for all. And so here we are in uh, midway plus through 2023 and the conclusions that are being drawn from our experiences really are sort of the uh, headlights for the, the warfare vehicle. This is this is what we um, conclude from what happened. And uh, so in that way, we're fighting over history, even as we are challenging, hopefully, the warfare state
2: today. Because Vietnam was was different. Vietnam was sort of a kind of a wake-up call about what our job is and what we were supposed to be doing. And we walked into this. Well, my brother served in Vietnam, so it was, and that was when I was in my twenties, and we were out on the streets. And and so it was, it was, it's alive. Vietnam is very much alive to me, and um, and we were happy that it was hard and that the that the United States didn't win. There, uh, despite the terrible tragedies of everybody that lived in Vietnam, but we we also thought that that was the end of war. That and then 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 it started all this other kind of war that uh, was far away and other people and it was all mechanical and we didn't have to worry about anything. So that's what that's what Vietnam taught the establishment. Maybe you tell me yeah. then the media part. Yeah, of
0: Yeah, the, the term uh, quagmire was of course used as i remember by david halberstam and then there was a famous moment where uh walter cronkite uh said in 1968 that it appeared there was a stalemate and that the united states uh couldn't win and that's what passed for anti-war sentiment and i think uh, a huge problem that we continue to have is the difference between concluding that the united states shouldn't fight wars with intervention that it can't win, and the United States has no right to be intervening in the first place. And we have that difference today, where, as Senator Wayne Morse said, that it was just as wrong for the United States to operate on a principle, so to speak, of might makes right, as the Russians to operate on that principle. He said that in 1964, and it's still true in the current century, and when we step back or sort of try to see the overview of US foreign policy in this century up to the moment, I think it is a might makes right policy. The United States with whether it's Fox News or the New York Times or all things considered in Morning Edition, PBS Hour, et cetera, et cetera. The precept is that the United States has the prerogative to work its will on the world militarily as it believes is prudent and conceivably successful and the counter uh, argument is that there should be something like something that we adhere to called international law and so forth and to sort of wrap up that thought perhaps when we hear president biden and antony blinken secretary of state a saying very gravely that uh, Russia must be condemned because it's just wrong. It's against the needs of the world for one country to invade another. These were people who championed in the Senate as chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and chief of staff of that committee uh, midway through 2002 to uh, grease the path for the invasion of Iraq. So, you know, it's quintessentially Orwellian and, In the current Mm. moment, I think it's uh, important to, to recognize that hypocrisy in Washington in no way justifies the slaughter that Russia is inflicting on Ukraine. And at the same time, the slaughter being inflicted on Ukraine in no way justifies not only U.S. hypocrisy, but also ongoing U.S. foreign policy. And in this book, War Made Invisible, I draw in a lot of research, for instance, from the Costs of War Project at Brown University, showing that the so-called war on terror has never ended. It's become less visible. There are drone strikes in Africa. There is bombing in Syria, courtesy of US taxpayers. There are special operations going on in many different countries, most of which we don't hear about. Across Africa, the US is training military forces. Uh, so-called counterinsurgency is going on according to the Brown U- University study in 85 countries. So as it becomes less and less visible, not on the news that is provided to Americans on a daily basis, the U.S. is is functioning as a full-blown warfare state. The $850 billion going to the Pentagon per year, which doesn't even include the nuclear weapons spending, is going somewhere. And you know, uh, speaking of Vietnam, I'm old enough to remember that Uh, sardonic, angry saying, uh, war is profitable, invest your son. That's going back to the 1960s. And now really, it's more like war is profitable, invest in Raytheon and uh, Boeing and so forth. That's where we are, Air Wars. And the belief that, which is implicit, not really stated out loud, that since the United States has the most powerful military in the world, it is the most righteous. And that, in contrast to these crude terrorists who will put explosives into the trunk of a car and blow people up or put on a suicide belt, if you bomb people from 10,000 feet in the air and you slaughter civilians, well, that's just unfortunate
2: for them. Well, if you do a suicide plane bombing with the with the plane into the towers, et cetera. Yeah, Live mm-hmm. and learn is how you'll.
0: Yeah. You know, I was thinking about this uh, the other day when I was looking at a study uh, that's an update from one that I cite in the book, uh, the cost of war project at Brown University, uh, very conservatively estimated about 350,000 civilians directly killed by the US so-called war on terror. You add in other direct deaths, it's about 950,000. But then this new study has uh, shown that conservatively 4.5 million people have been killed directly and indirectly from the post 9-11 wars. And if you do the math, that's 3,000 people, And in the names of those 3000 people, several million people have been killed. It's not a difficult leap to say that this is not only displaced rage that began in October 2001, but also collective punishment of people who are completely innocent in country after country.
2: You're listening to, as you must know, Norman Solomon about his new book, War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Human Toll of its Military Machine. And here he says, uh, in a, a apropos of what he was just talking about and media frames, the routine exclusion of women harmed by US, people harmed by people harmed by people harmed by U.S. warfare con, conveys that they don't really matter much because we rarely see images of their suffering or hear their voices or encounter empathetic words about them. The implicit message comes through loud and clear. The silence ends up speaking at high volume. Those people hardly exist. They are others. They're not our concern. They don't particularly matter while our country is causing their misery. And your many years of media criticism and analysis and participation. Uh, talk about how that happens. The, the, the highly selective uh, coverage of, of even uh, national public radio, our tax dollar paid for media.
0: A couple of hours ago, I was driving and listening to All Things Considered, the one of the crown jewels of NPR News, and there was a, a very powerful, empathetic story of a couple of young Ukrainian women who toured the country in recent months with their songs to try to uh, shore up people's spirits in the midst of bombing. And then they were killed by uh, a, a Russian uh, bombing attack. It's very moving. And I thought about how rare to the point of almost non existence NPR news reporting would chronicle the suffering of people who died under US bombs in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and elsewhere. And that sort of double think, or what I refer to in the book as the inculcation of a belief in two tiers of grief people who matter, people who don't, Americans killed in wars, appropriately mourned, those killed by US firepower, uh, virtually ignored, rarely uh, talked about, empathy not expressed or generated and all that. And whatever adjective we might want to use to apply to the political and media establishment, and really to a large extent, the discourse and the, the perhaps we might say inner lives of people in the United States ethically, morally, spiritually, it's a tremendous corrosion that's going on all the time. And it's so routine. It's the proverb of the fish in water. What water uh, after a while we're so accustomed to it that uh, the, the need to wake each other up, wake ourselves up is, is constant when i drove today as is mostly the case and i imagine everybody on our gathering here has had this experience i saw ukrainian flags and i've never seen a yemeni flag even though or maybe especially because Mm. the united states had for so many years and has continued to provide uh, military equipment Uh, fighter bombers, and so forth, uh, to Saudi Arabia, while the Saudi-led war on Yemen has continued. Um, There's a little bit of a truce now, but it went on for seven or eight years, full war beginning in 2015. We had a bipartisan set of presidents, Obama, Trump, Biden, giving aid and political cover uh, to the Saudis as they slaughtered people Mm -hmm. in Yemen, uh, according to the UN, probably the largest cholera epidemic in history, resulting estimated uh, close to 400,000 people killed there since uh, 2015. So what does it mean that we have all this empathy expressed towards uh, people in Ukraine, complete with flags, and uh, not on the radar, so to speak, uh, politically, in terms of media about people in, in Yemen? I mentioned in the book, a study by the media watch group FAIR, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, that uh, looked at uh, quite a long stretch of uh, coverage of news by MSNBC, and you know, that's the liberal network. And uh, FAIR found that while there was tremendous amounts of coverage, hundreds of hours of coverage, primetime about so-called Russiagate during the administration of uh, Donald Trump, there was virtually no coverage of what was going on in Yemen. And we might say, well, wow, that's that's in spite of the fact that the United States government was involved in all that killing in Yemen. Mm. We would not say that's because the United States government was involved with the killing in Yemen.
2: Well, let's talk about money. <laughs> Because uh, inevitably uh, in the capitalist society, which heaven knows we're in, uh, that's what it gets down to. And and one of our uh, participants here is already mentioning the military budget, which is obscene, uh, mm-hmm. given all the other things that are are needed for humans and the planet. Um, and i'm I, I keep thinking about uh you know World War One, and there were jingoistic uh, journalism then and yellow journalism and all kinds of stuff, but it it wasn't it wasn't so huge and it it didn't make that much money and then all of a sudden it was corporatized, and now we've got the internet we've got we we're, we're inundated by with with information and have real difficulties figuring out what's true and what isn't and what sources are reliable and what sources are not. But talk about how that money, that explosion of media and then the bottom line money of the military establishment. uh, Tell us about money. (laughs)
0: Yeah, well, uh, the profiteering, if not exactly hidden in plain sight is pretty much uh, relegated to uh, minor mention, and when the industries that are profiting from war so handsomely, so to speak, are mentioned, the tone is usually, "Hey, this is uh, this is good. This is uh, part of what commerce is supposed to be. These are reputable uh, from a standpoint of, you might say, a human concern. A place like Raytheon." that's just making huge profits off of helping the military to kill people. You know, one might think, hey, well, that's not exactly the best um, kind of use of human ingenuity. But in point of fact, it's very rare in news media, certainly of mass corporate media or so-called public broadcasting like NPR, PBS, very rare to see any aspersions cast on that kind of business activity. and so when we look at the budget for instance uh william Hartung, the great researcher has put out a report last year and he uh said that uh, the uh military contractors and we shouldn't call them defense contractors military contractors 700 of them full-time on capitol hill they outnumber members of the house and senate so they they have it down uh one example that i give is Adam Smith? Uh, don't know. Certainly not the Scottish economist. But he was until this year uh, the chair of the um, House Armed Services Committee, and he had enormous power over who got contracts from uh, for the Pentagon. And during the most recent cycle, as this book went to press, he got four hundred thousand dollars from the military industries. So naturally, he um, had a good, a good relationship. So one other thought on this, Chris, is that during World War II, one of the ways that then Senator Harry Truman became renowned was he held hearings on Capitol Hill, this is during the Second World War, and he really lambasted what were called war profiteers and in recent years i sort of look around where is the media coverage where where's the denunciation of quote war profiteers we just really don't see it
2: hmm. so and and what in in what should the media what could the media be it, it's it i'm thinking about the the poor taxpayers the the all of us out here trying to figure out what's right and what's wrong and what's fake and what's true and 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 what is our power because obviously they are very afraid of the power that our knowing the truth uh might have i'm not because otherwise why would the media be so insistent on oh don't look over here look over there
0: yeah well certainly enmeshed in the what we could call now the military industrial media surveillance high-tech complex and so the Boards of directors are often interlocked. There is uh, a lot of advertising that comes directly or indirectly from uh, war-associated industries. And there's also a sensibility, the revolving door that moves in both directions, from government to high or visible media positions, or vice versa. It's become very common that White House spokespeople uh, used to be uh, a media figure or The other way around, think George Stephanopoulos, and it's uh, what gets normalized. And when people come into the profession, you know, young journalists, you want to be successful. What's the role model? What defines professionalism? Well, it's the people who are farther along in the profession, who've achieved more, who've who've gained some um, modicum of acclaim and so forth. And so that that defines what journalism in practice is, not in theory. Uh, The New York Times motto, without fear or favor, uh, sounds pretty good, but uh, in fact, so to speak, the window on the world is, is tinted red, white, and blue, and it's a truism in the U.S. context in terms of U.S. wars. Told? If you are a pro-war, you're objective. If you're if you're anti-war, you're biased. And in the book, uh, and I think this is a consequence of of the corporate power, who owns the big media outlets, who advertises on on them, all the corporate interlocks and sensibilities with government officials. I give two examples that were major, one somewhat well-known, some less known. Major one is Phil Donahue, who on MSNBC had the temerity to have anti-war guests in the mix as the United States was gearing up towards invading Iraq in late uh, 2002 and early 2003. And we don't have to conjecture why his show, Phil Donahue's show, was cancelled by MSNBC just a few weeks before the invasion of Iraq. He was a, a top rated show, highest rated in primetime, canceled anyway. There was a leak of, of two memos from MSNBC and NBC saying that we're really worried that Donahue seems to delight in bringing on anti-war guests when our competitors at Fox and CNN are waving the flag. And so, ipso facto, e pluris unum, whatever, it seemed logical. Well, fire the guy. This is not what we're about. Another example, less well known is Ashley Banfield, someone who was a young up and coming correspondent. She happened to be right in the vicinity of the Twin Towers on 9-11. She broadcast live from there at MSNBC. And then NBC, uh, she was seen as a rising star, perhaps to take Katie Couric's anchor chair. Finally, on the evening news, she was sent to cover the uh, invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq, but she made one big career mistake. She was truth she was truthful about the impacts of war. She gave one speech at a university in Kansas, and her big network career was basically toast in one hour. This was a few weeks after the Saddam Hussein statue fell in Baghdad, and she said in her speech that there's a difference between coverage and journalism. She said, we in the networks showed you what happens when the missiles are launched, but we didn't show you what happened when the missiles landed. And I can assure you, it's not just a bunch of dust and some puffs of smoke. She immediately was trashed by top management at NBC. They. Ironically enough, the speech was in Manhattan, Kansas, they were back in Manhattan, in New York, and it was just, she had spoken some truth in an outlying area that was not to be permitted uh, at the NBC headquarters, so the news releases came out fast and furious, Uh, Ms. Banfield does not speak for the network, she did not mean to denigrate the work of her colleagues, she will choose her words more carefully in the future. But on the network, she didn't have an opportunity to choose her words more carefully, because when she returned, she was basically uh, put in a tape closet and uh, they would not let her out of her contract. And it was very vindictive. And she was an object lesson, uh, just as Phil Donahue was.
2: Hmm. Norman Solomon uh, with us with his new book, War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine and lots of folks here online. That's wonderful listening. And before we go to them, because I know they have questions and I'm seeing really good things coming in at the bottom of the screens here, I wanted to address this, uh, your chapter seven, uh, which is entitled The Color of War. And when uh, we were talking on KPFA on Friday, I I brought this up that I, I remember so vividly these images of Ukrainians fleeing uh, the war. And they looked like white folks here in middle America. They were in little puff jackets and their kids and blonde and blue eyed. And, and we do not see people fleeing war who are brown for some reason. Talk about that.
0: Some of the reporting said the silent stuff out loud in the early weeks of the Russian attack on Ukraine. Statements like, well, these victims of war, they look like us, which is an ugly statement to put it mildly, but that, that was said a number of times through major US media outlets. And I think if you leave aside, which is huge, the political bias, the spin, the ahistorical coverage through US media of the Ukraine war and what led up to it, such as NATO expansion, The actual coverage of the suffering in ukraine has been really good there's a lot of quality ongoing coverage to convey that war is just so horrific in so many ways unfortunately that kind of coverage has been very rare when the victims are the victims of u.s firepower and that is really um, i think a result of a number of key factors one is ideological that when the u.s is doing the killing that um, the presumption is, the received wisdom is, that any uh, unfortunate killing is just that, it's not intentional, it doesn't reflect on our character as a nation. And I point out in the book, the killing of civilians in the war on terror, so-called, was totally and has been totally predictable. Uh, So there is that facet. There also is just the, the designated US enemy when it kills, by definition is inherently evil. Whereas when the United States kills, well, we just, you know, we just made a mistake. Something else that really hit me when I was working on this book is to realize that virtually all of those who have been killed by US firepower in the so-called war on terror have been people of color. And talk about hidden in plain sight, um and I actually uh there's a whole chapter as you say chris um titled color of war that explores that in some depth and when i've written about this in recent weeks and sent to some of our august uh, media outlets as an op-ed piece it's like they're all rejected it's like and it's not as though oh we've already uh had an op-ed about this no they haven't it's just like oh well this is like really this is this is into a no-go zone so don't don't talk about it, don't even point it out. And they say in the book, the United States doesn't bond countries because they're inhabited by people of color. But the fact that they're inhabited by people of color makes it easier to engage in warfare on those countries. And I think it's very notable in the last few years that it's a good thing. There's been more and more talk about structural racism, systemic racism is a word that until a few years ago, it was just uh, on the left that we'd hear about uh, systemic racism. Now it's become more widely discussed, not enough, but at least more widely. And yet the reality that government and corporate power uh, is affected by uh, systemic racism, still there's virtually no discussion in the mass media about how it affects foreign policy. It's as though Structural racism, systemic racism, only affects domestic policy, which, as the saying goes, strains credulity
2: mm, mm, mm. uh Norman Solomon and his newest book, War Made Invisible
0: and Chris, let me jump in
2: before now I you tell down. me what you want to talk about we've well
0: no i i'm glad <laughs> I've been happy to be talking uh talking at people here. Um, and all your questions really uh, on point. Before I forget, when we build uh, counter uh, messaging, counter sensibilities, counter institutions, they really need to be sustained. And that has to do with TV, radio, newspapers, websites, and also has to do with bookstores and the book industry. And so one of the reasons I'm thrilled to be here this evening is City Lights Books. As a publisher, as a bookstore, this is truly one of the greatest booksellers in US history. And so I want to remind folks of that, uh, whether you're thinking about buying a book tonight, whether you're going to be in San Francisco at some time in the future, or uh, can remember to go to the City Lights uh, website, we've got to support our own institutions. And I do want to add as well for Chris, I don't know if you if it's okay, if I call you an institution, But you've been on, but you've been on KPFA for many, many decades and always enlightening, always keeping the uh, banner high for a humane future. So thank you for that. And KPFA should be supported as well.
2: There are those who have suggested I need to be institutionalized, but that's another <laughs> altogether. That's a
0: very different word.
2: <laughs> I want to also repeat, as I did on Friday, because it's it, it moved me. When you get to the acknowledgments page at the end of the book, uh, Norman begins by saying memories of people I met in Iraq and Afghanistan. He traveled many, many times to uh, at Baghdad, as he says, and felt like he was in t- on two different planets before the U.S. invasion. People, you know, going out to dinner and sitting in a cafe. And at the same time, they're talking about, let's see, what kind of bomb should we use in Washington? Anyway, memories of people I met in Iraq and Afghanistan challenged me to avoid abstraction while writing this book. What I learned from them is beyond measure. And he pays some of that debt with this book and with this pa- ongoing, as long as I've known him, the deep and strong passion that he has for conveying the truth about especially uh, things that kill people, war and nuclear weapons. He's That's I don't know how you sleep at night, Norman, as much as you do about the most awful things that humans can do, really.
0: Well, I anyway. think now, maybe, um, in some respects, even more than ever, because of um, the looming threat of nuclear war, the superpower confrontations going on, I think a lot of us are um, feeling a heightened sense of urgency. Um, anxiety doesn't even describe it in some ways. And it's uh, about being in touch with what Pat, what we don't want uh, to be a reality, but But really is. Uh, We don't get to live in the world we want to live in. This one is run by murderers, I hate to say it, in terms of government. And so we have that challenge in a country such as this that has some elements of democracy to to find uh, the spaces and expand them that
2: could uh, create a better future. I did. So I wanted to have my grandson say hello, Mwah. Mandela, the, the, which is one of the reasons the next generations is what's the world that they're inheriting. Anyway, I can see you're going to have some ramen. Uh, so let we have people that have questions that are all with us here. So I'd like to let them come into the of. Uh, whatever this is and i think that that's uh, peter's job a eh? do i do anything i also wanted to i commented when we first joined the thing that peter and norman and i are all sitting in front of books uh, even though we're not all in the same place i just sort of like that part <laughs> a <laughs> anyway,
1: great thing so let's uh run through here and we've got yeah quite a bit of stuff going on um let's see let's scroll up to the beginning David asks, what do you think of a land value tax as a primary source of revenue would illuminate what we pay taxes for? Roads or missiles, schools or bombers, healthcare or drones?
0: Well, at least the polling I've seen shows that if the questions are asked reasonably, uh, most people want spending to go for, for lack of a better phrase, human needs and do not want the Pentagon to be running away with the budget, which now the discretionary federal budget is uh, 55% or so for the military. And that's that's been rising. We were talking earlier, I was qu- quoting Orwell about the past and the future and control. And I think on this point that the destruction of history is so important uh, as a means of control And when we hear about Martin Luther King Jr.'s, I have a dream speech, of course, it was very beautiful, It is still very relevant. And then we do not hear in the mass media, virtually never about his 1967 speech at Riverside Church on April 4th. And in that speech a year before he was murdered, uh, he talked about military spending runaway military spending as a quote, destructive demonic suction tube, unquote. So imagine all of these politicians, even Republicans who uh, love to pop up once in a while praising King and talk about, I have a dream. Um, How often do they talk about their military spending as a demonic suction tube? I I don't think so.
1: Hmm. So Jarvis says, hi Norman, uh, Nader Fellow here. What do you make? of the new emphasis of so-called elites, quote-unquote, on correcting alleged disinformation. There's even a new term, malinformation. What do you make of this new focus of dominant groups in academia, think tanks, et cetera?
0: Yeah, um, it's it's quite a, a swirling puzzle right now because there are so many forces messaging all the time, and the ones with the biggest megaphones uh, have the dominance over what is what is misinformation? What is disinformation? I have a entire chapter in the book called Repetition and Omission, where what is left out is often the most powerful. So yes, we should challenge the uh, misinformation, but also it's the omissions. Uh, I have a quote at the beginning, actually an epigraph uh, from Aldous Huxley who says, uh, Lies are powerful, but even more powerful is silence about truth. And I think that's that's where we are. Um, and so just to digress slightly and hopefully quickly, the um, social media has and the web has lowered the barriers to entry for progressives. But it also obviously has given a lot of empowerment to uh, people who are excelling in um in lies, in hate, and in distortion of history, in nativism, racism, misogyny, and so forth. And uh, one other thought is that if we're going to turn this around, we have a responsibility to, along with the other realms of propaganda, recognize uh, what is not only um, infotainment, but disinfotainment. We're constantly getting disinfotainment uh in the movies on tv that's supposed to be entertaining us and that's you know as antonio Gramsci would talk about this has given us sensibilities that normalize and make very specific pro-corporate and repressive sensibilities um common sense and we're encouraged to believe this is common sense you spend all this money on the military is common sense you uh, leave it to the market common sense
1: Cynthia uh, mentions, do you um, mention the military's contribution to climate destruction in your book? I do only briefly. Uh, I had to sort of, or felt I needed to sort of confine
0: myself um, to the subtitle um, how uh, the toll, is, how the military toll is hidden, the human toll. And of course, uh, the environmental destruction is also going to destroy human beings, but you know, for better and worse, I sort of focused it. That said, the fact is that uh, the single institution on the planet most responsible for negative climate change is the Pentagon. And it's very difficult to get that into the
1: media. Mm. While we're waiting for more questions to come in, actually, I, I have a, a question um, for educators. Who are interested in teaching critical thinking, the youth uh, regarding this subject um, and with you know new media and technology now, uh, creating very, very different environments for our senses and challenges to our senses. Um, I'm wondering, you know, do you have thoughts on this? In terms
0: of uh, how the, the peg-doggy of the oppressed, 2023. That, that
1: yes, thank you. You got it. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
0: well, i You know, if I was wearing a hat, I would. I would have my hat off to to teachers who are really uh, in very dire circumstances, and I'm not only talking in Florida, yeah. but across the country. You know, the the overload, the lack of resources, the huge classes, the social forces that are beyond the control of anybody inside the schoolhouse. And yet um, teachers get blamed for the problems that uh, they're doing their best quite often to try to try to mitigate. Other material is really important. And I think that's, again, where, where books come in, where radio programs, where podcasts. i worked a lot with the Media Education Foundation, which is a 501c3. It's terrific. I was lucky enough that they adapted my earlier book war made easy into a documentary and almost all of their films are provided uh, to college and high schools and it really makes a difference so it's an ongoing uh, battle and unfortunately the most powerful educators in the united states are the media and that mm. has uh, changed
2: mm. Yeah, oh.
1: we have um Question from Diana, what do you make of the lack of response to Bernie's opposition to war spending or progressive attempts to rein in military spending? How might these efforts gain traction? This is a reference to
0: Bernie Sanders right correct yeah. uh, well i you know i I guess I'm biased about bernie. I, I love his domestic uh, politics. I was lucky enough to be a Bernie delegate uh, in twenty sixteen and twenty twenty to the national conventions. And he, and this is sort of the good news and bad news, he made history by being uh, a unique member of the Congress who announced, I'm not gonna vote for an increase in military spending. And uh, it's too bad that's conspicuous, that that's so unusual. We need pressure, Uh, we're way too nice uh, to elected members of Congress. I don't care if they're in the Progressive Caucus or not. They're going along with the war program right now with very rare exceptions, and why we need to go out of our way to thank members of Congress who do things we like and then stay silent or overly polite when they gin up the uh, war machine, i I just don't get it it's It's acculturation that says, "Oh, you know they they're serving us, we should be grateful. It's a cliche, but it's true they're supposed to work for us." And to get a little Bay Area here, um, our entire delegation to the House of Representatives has jumped on the war train in terms of Ukraine without demanding diplomacy. Yes, let's vote for one huge quantity of weapons to Ukraine after another. But oh no, we can't impose, quote unquote, any diplomacy whatsoever on the situation. I think it's madness. And I think this kind of groupthink that uh, unfortunately the Democrats in Congress are part of really is incredibly destructive. And without conflating the eras, this reminds me of 1964, when there was a Democrat in the White House and we had members of Congress with two exceptions, Greening and Morse in the Senate, voting for war out of 535. We've got to change that, that's up to us. And a brief plug, At uh, RootsAction.org, we're coordinating Diffuse Nuclear War campaigns. And the last week of September, there are going to be decentralized picket lines and other actions around the country at uh, congressional offices and so forth. And everybody's invited. You can go uh, sign up. We'll give you action alerts. And that's at Mm DiffuseNuclearWar.org.
1: Well, we have more questions coming in, but we're coming to the top of the hour. So, Chris, I was wondering, do you have any last thoughts, any last questions you'd like to pose?
2: Uh, No, but I'm going to return to a a, a, a reference that Norman made, which is his introductory quotes here from um, Aldous Huxley. Where he says, as Norman mentioned, the greatest triumphs of propaganda have been accomplished not by doing something, but by refraining from doing great is truth, but still greater from a practical point of view is silence about truth. Silence equals death. Remember that from the AIDS campaign. War made invisible. Thank you, Norman, so much. And keep on keeping on.
0: Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Peter, and everybody who's on our uh, gathering tonight.
1: Well, I thank you both for a very engrossing conversation. It's such an honor to have you both in our virtual halls. Chris Welch, thank you for doing the honors. Norman Solomon, congratulations on another really compelling and very, very important book. Read Um, more books. Yes, (laughs) we posted links in the chat, so please check those out. Yet better yet. We're uh, in North Beach. Come on down, visit the hood, browse our stacks. As I mentioned earlier in the chat, we have a very extensive poli-sci, journalism, muckraking, numerous sections. Uh, How's your
2: children's section?
1: Yes, we have a massive, massive children's. So uh, come on down. We're open seven days a week from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. We are getting back to our pre-pandemic hours uh, also want to point out City Lights is celebrating its 70th anniversary this year. We're going to be featuring a special calendar of events. Uh, it is running through to the end of the year. It's going to include both live in-store and online. Uh, we've got a poetry reading coming up this coming weekend on Sunday in uh, Kerouac Alley, beginning at 1, ending at 5. There's going to be music, poetry. Come on down, hang out with us. Also, keep an eye on our calendar for pending announcements for more events, Today's event has been made possible by support from the City Lights Foundation, which continues the legacy of our founder, the late Lawrence Ferlinghetti through public events like this one, our publishing program and educational outreach, all dedicated to sustaining a vibrant community of readers, writers, and independent thinkers. So take care, everyone. I hope to see you all again soon. Be well.
2: Thanks for listening
1: to Live
0: from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com
2: events.